Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Coides. On this episode, we speak to Moet Rajans on the future of media, marketing, and the mind. Well, thanks for joining us in the D-Next Dojo, Mohit. It's great to have you here. First of all, congratulations, because this pivot that you've done with this podcast is really groundbreaking. Uh, I have to admit, I do a lot of work uh, within content, and watching what you've been able to do with this in the last six months even is phenomenal. So I really do appreciate the opportunity to chat with you here. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. And the admiration is mutual because I am really looking forward to this particular topic and episode because I believe that when you peel it all back, this is probably the most important thing that we have to talk about uh, for the future because it really impacts everything. So my first question, what is the biggest trend hitting media and marketing right now and why should we care yeah i you know it's it's a wonderful question because it's so big but i think that from a direct uh person to person standpoint if a if a general audience is listening definitely social commerce is the big thing that's happening right now uh, it's been accelerated in the idea that there are many entrepreneurs that are, are are selling now directly to their consumer and not having to go through the six or seven various channels, not even available in some cases to them. I think social commerce is a big thing. I think Shopify's done a, a, a big um, a big boost right now in being able to really engage the right types of people who want to sell directly to consumers. I think podcasting, as you um, have alluded to with this and I've shown success with, is another huge uh, opening right now for people to connect both co- commerce and culture. Uh, and it's also, it's it's gone through an iteration already. So it's, it's phenomenal to me that podcasting five years ago where things like Serial and, and one or two shows by Joe Rogan and, and Mark Marin, and now look at us, we're talking about practical business solutions for a specific you know group and we're having these great thought leadership conversations through these mediums that don't have to just be one thing right a podcast can be a functional communication tool for an entire organization or it can be you know your best of Celine Dion mixtape <laughs> tribute if you wanted to do it I'm not saying that's what you want to do I'm just saying um, and of course we can't ignore the phenomenal stuff that's happening in TikTok and, and the idea around how it's gone from being just this funny dance video thing to actually functional tool for many people to reach out to a real global audience. So why is this direct to consumer uh, new trend a game changer? How does that, I guess, affect the equation? Well, to be honest with you, I think uh, the people that have been doing it for the last three years uh, would probably say, well, it's not a new trend. Everybody's just waking up. Right. And I would say that what it 
what we're doing now is we're starting to see that whether it's Etsy, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever it is, we're starting to see that these digital tools and the way that we're, we've been using them are all, is only one fifth of how they can really be used. And so when I say direct to commerce, I think it's little less like, oh, I'm opening a t-shirt shop and you guys should buy it. I mean, I'm sorry, direct to consumer. Um, but what I do mean a little more so is that people are realizing, oh, okay, so there are people actually making money off of Facebook, off of Etsy, off of, you know, um, even Instagram. And now people are just waking up to the idea that the tools exist. How do you use them properly? But also, how do you not get fleeced in the process? You know, education is everything when it comes down to utilizing these tools. There's no one button that you press that all of a sudden I'm on this and now it's going to work. No, this is an ongoing evolution. And I think when we start to talk a little bit more, uh, you know, about things like the social dilemma and stuff, we can chat a little bit about where that line is between should you be knowledgeable and playing in all these fields versus you should focus on one specifically and make sure that you're going to get the most out of it. Okay. So let's talk about that line because we've seen the impact that direct-to-consumer has had, let's say, in American politics, for one. Are there areas where technology has gone too far, as the popular documentary, The Social Dilemma, would suggest? Have we sold our souls, and is there a dialing back coming up soon? Well, let's not let's definitely i'm going to answer your last question first a dialing back doesn't necessarily mean a, a global dialing back there will be a dialing back based on people understanding where they want to spend their time in the attention economy so while we i don't say a dialing back because you're not going to see screen time usage start to um start to retract what you are going to see is people caring a little bit less about checking in on five different social networks to get some sort of fulfillment so that's the dialing back part that I think that's going to happen but I have to admit um, I have to admit that I don't necessarily believe that technology has gone too far I think it's us uh, I think that we have put ourselves in a situation where we haven't built these platforms with the right safeguards in place to to really give um, our own uh, restrictions. Uh, you know, we're, we are the people that are using these tools is what I'm saying. And we're feeding it based on what we're trying to get out of it. And many times it's humans that are going in um, and, and, and making it something that it wasn't originally intended for. And that's the part of the evolution of technology platforms. But I would shudder to think that it's big tech that's creating these issues. Because at the end of the day, without users, they're nothing. So we're feeding the system. I understand it's give and take. I think what we have to stop doing is blaming big tech for being you know, the instigators in it. Instead, stop and saying, okay, what is the real value of what I'm trying to achieve through whatever social media that I'm doing? And how does it make sense for what I want to get out of it? Rather than, oh, I'm gonna be addicted to this. If you're addicted to a platform, right then you automatically know i think that so social social media is a little less like alcohol and a little more like an elevator does that make sense so it's a little less of this consumption thing that we have to share and, and be in you know we get a kind of uh, hungover like <laughs> we get the social media hangover etc it's a little less like that now and more like an elevator where you stop and say oh i'm going to be on this floor i'm going to browse around this department store i'm going to look around i'm going to get something out of it and if not i'm going to go back and i'm going to go back down to reality or up to another level that's the way i like to consider it a little bit less you know a little bit less punching you in the face and a 
little bit more. How are you exploring these worlds and making it most beneficial to yourself? Like one last question, I'll, I mean, one last thing I'll mention about that. If you're a real estate agent, if you're a fitness influencer, food, travel person, et cetera, et cetera, you've probably gone from being a hyper blogger in the last year to using new platforms. Now, think, uh, think about that from a pivot standpoint. You can't ignore now what these channels have already built for you. Right. And so to, to shy away from it, to think that there's going to be a dialing back would be really counterintuitive to anybody's business. Okay. So once again, humans only have themselves to blame for their yes. situation. So another category of humans are entrepreneurs. And I want to know, in your opinion, what role you think new entrepreneurs will have in the shaping of this new media future i mean are these new entrepreneurs or the tech entrepreneurs the philosophers of our times and who are you watching right now yeah it's interesting you say that because i th i would love to see a little less entrepreneur stardom and a little bit more entrepreneur empowering because what i what i've noticed is if you follow some of the big tech companies be it shopify or whatever there's a lot of raw raw going on about oh it's so great that we do this it's so great that we're winning it's so great that we're empowering people but the message gets lost in the fact that it's really coming from the top brass who's obviously happy that the stock is is doing well you know and so what i'm trying to say is that i think we have to get away from being um, from looking at leaders of tech organizations as being superstars and instead how, how they really built their Avengers. Who's the team that's amplifying each other? How are they empowering people to, uh, to go out and preach the good word on behalf of their leadership? Not how are they doing it themselves straight to camera? You know, we're in a situation now where if you build a strong communications platform internally with any of these digital tools, you're really able to boost morale. But you're going to build disdain, disdain amongst your team if as an entrepreneur, you're not able to build other people and other other avenues in order to connect with both content and uh, with commerce and culture. So I guess what I'm saying is that I would love to see the trend to continue for tech entrepreneurs to lead the way in great innovation, but I think they also need to get out of the way. And, and I think that they need, we need to start to show the real value of how these teams are being built to solve real life dilemmas. Who do you think, maybe this is the wrong way to phrase the question, but who do you think is to blame for that uh, kind of worship that we have encountered? I mean, there's a famous line in a Paul Simon song that every generation throws a hero up the pop charts. I mean, did this start with with say Steve Jobs, was he was he the first rock star uh, tech guru out there? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I think Steve Jobs, if if you gave him, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, that that recognition, he'd probably be embarrassed by it. Because what social media has done, uh, or what we're doing with social media, sorry, what tech entrepreneurs are often doing with social media are using it to evangelize what the philosophy of their product or, or, or offering is. Um, but once they get past that and they start to chime in on issues and they start to chime in on opinions, there's a real danger. You know, the, the, the person, the leader shouldn't be the brand is, is basically what I'm trying to get at. It, there's way too much danger in one or two leaders being the brand, be it BlackBerry, be it Shopify, we've seen it all. 
once we put them on a pedestal, they're one Jenga block away from the entire thing coming down. Instead, why don't you boast a little bit about <clears throat> your corporate social responsibility? Show me how a victory at work in what you've done in raising money has actually led to something better in the world. If it hasn't led to something better in the world, how has it led to something better for your employees in the in what you're building? That'll give us the the feeling that it's a little less big tech being successful and preaching to us about how successful they are, and more so how they're doing better for the people around you and the generations that are coming next. You know, there's a huge disconnect right now between the baby boomer population and what technical innovation is needed. And it's surprising that you don't see entrepreneurs straight to camera talking about how they've made this wonderful thing that an aging population is going to be able to um, to use to benefit themselves. Instead, it's oh wait a minute, we're making more entrepreneurs, we're making great people sell things, and hopefully they're going to come along for the ride while we make them better people. That's not the case anymore. Listen, we we don't have hero worship the same way we had back then. Instead, we have to start looking at people as leaders based on function and start to look at how they're engaging in digital tools as making sense rather than just hyperbole. Okay, so on that note, who are some of the most interesting brands who are either espousing that philosophy or doing the most interesting things on the planet right now? You know, I, I saw you sent me this question and I felt a little bit hesitant to start to talk about um, this only because of the fact that I personally watch a lot of media brands, right? So I watch Roku, Apple, Twitch. I watch all the social media platforms that figure out where they're going and what they're doing. But I'll tell you the problem right now from a communication standpoint is that it's not, okay, so let's, let's go backwards a little bit. By the fall of this year, you would have been getting all the announcements about what technical innovations and what new products, etc., are happening in, in the world, in the digital world. And I think what's happened is 2021 isn't really clear about where innovation is, is going to go, what products companies are really going to move forward with, how they're going to change, how they're going to pivot. Will TikTok's privacy issues continue? Will there be a, a Walmart integration within? So. I struggled to sort of really boost my, my um, hey, you should really check out Tesla, you should really check out this, because on one hand, you might think to yourself, yeah, they're doing great, I can't wait till next year. On another hand, I don't know if Peloton's gonna lay off, you know, uh, 3,000 people next year because there's no gyms. So I have a great amount of uncertainty about what is a smoke show in with some of these companies versus who's doing some really cool stuff. That's why I'm not committed to giving you who I'm watching right now because I'm watching everybody, but I'm also worried um, that, not, uh, that not all of them will survive. For example, where does Zoom go after this, right? Does Zoom now become the, uh, like, is Zooming the what you're gonna call it from now on? with seven other players in the mix and will microsoft teams and google meets etc start to amp up their game in collaboration so that they can be introduced in a thing like salesforce and slack i don't know but it might be a necessity if all offices are closed until july 1st right so i'm sorry i'm not answering your questions directly but i'm super excited and very weary about what's actually going to happen so on that note again if you had to summarize or boil it down or focus it in on, in your opinion, one thing that you think we need to know about the upcoming future of media and marketing, what would that be? The importance of your digital footprint has never been 
more more clear. If whether you're a person, business, or a brand, if you have not put yourself in a situation where you're building your online presence to be accessible by all different types of people, and there are laws and regulations that are moving towards that. If if you are not concerned with how your digital footprint is right now, and you have not gone back to clean it up and understand how people are searching, finding, and connecting with you, you're completely three steps behind. Then the second part of that is that the build. I look at it as everyone has a marketing stack. Nobody talks about having a content stack. You have to have this ability now to pull levers at different times. Look, your show is a perfect example of this. You have done podcasting here in an entirely different way than Joe Rogan has, or even Pepsi has, or anybody. And you've done it based on your terms. You've got a clean interface. You're not pushing people to one platform. Your your content is varied. You're not making any. You, it's your voice, but you're giving yourself、um, the ability to bring other voices in. This is the type of stuff where you're showing that the importance of both your guests having a message in a digital footprint and you understanding yours comes together. And more people need to learn like this. Remember, some people started Facebook when they were 15 and they're 25 now. What does that look like to a future employer? Right? You're doing different things. So my theory is that if you're not looking at the significance of how you're being found and sought online and the experience of that, then you've automatically put yourself in extreme disservice because that's some of the only ways people are going to find you. Okay, and now with that. We're gonna flip things around, and I'm gonna hand this episode over to you. And you have the、uh, privilege, I suppose, or the honor of、uh, asking me a bunch of questions. So over to you. Yeah, <clears throat> let's start with why. Okay, let's.、Uh, I, I know that you're somebody who's been extremely curious. I want to figure out why the podcast really started for you, and then what were you hoping to achieve versus what you have been、uh, experiencing so far. Right. Okay, that is a good question, and I was afraid that somebody would ask me that at some point in this journey. But now is the time to answer. I think there's two quick answers to that.、Uh, answer number one was that a lot of it was driven out of necessity. I just saw how things were changing very quickly,、uh, and how I needed to、uh, adapt to that changing environment and to do something that was going to generate. Interest generate audience、uh, and generate、um, you know an economic kind of ecosystem for myself to connect with other other I guess thinkers and players out there as we build. The more philosophical side of that answer is that I have always been frustrated with the way media works, and that if you have an idea or a story to tell,、uh, it often is a huge machine that you need to put together. In terms of making a film or a television show or whatever the case may be, that I I just want to rapid fire stuff out there into the world and I guess satisfy a question or, or a curiosity I have. And so, in the last 20 years or so, I've had this interesting life where I've done as much work in the academic world as I have in the media sector, as I have in the political social world. And、uh, I met a lot of interesting people, and I thought, well, here's a good way to maybe bring all that together into one fusion point. The difference is, is, is that this is a lot different than what I thought it was going to be. And when I actually go back and look at all of the、uh, episodes now in the series, 
I've learned quite a lot in these last, uh, whatever it's been, six or eight weeks. So it's uh, it's really something that I'll be digesting uh, as I go forward because I, I, I think it's changed me as well. So you said changed you. How did you, what was the, the misconception that you had about this this uh, this like uh, the platform of podcasting versus um, what were you pleasantly surprised about? Like were you assuming it was going to be hard? Were you assuming yes. it was going to be? Yeah. Yes, I, I was assuming that it was going to be hard. And the irony is is that during my academic life uh, ten years ago, I was teaching these. Uh, programs and the fundamentals of social media and a lot of that based on the seminal work of Howard Rheingold who was someone that I had known and had admired and he had done a lot of work with Jerry Lanier on virtual reality and social media. Howard Rheingold actually, uh, Howard Rheingold is uh, going to be remembered as one of the key philosophers of our time if you look at what he actually brought into reality from virtual reality to social media and beyond it's quite something but I had, I guess, forgotten about that. And so when I was diving into podcasting as a solution to a problem that I was trying to solve, once I once I really dove in and figured it out, it was exactly the same principles that I was teaching 10 years ago about how syndication mm-hmm. works and how these things work. And then it just unlocked a whole uh, mysterious world to me. So I'm still obviously learning. And I think that is the key to keep learning. But that is probably the most surprising thing is that, um, uh, as you mentioned, this direct-to-consumer approach. Uh, and I think that the, my philosophy is is that I want people to explore and discover uh, this. And then I think with that, um, you know, it's going to speak to people who it wants it to speak to. As well, I really want to have a learning emphasis on this series. So I do talk mm-hmm. about this as a masterclass series because I feel that that is what's going to add value and maybe cut through the noise of, of a lot of... Um, uh, other media out there that's currently jamming things up. Yeah, I love that. And I love that your academic background actually uh, creates a bridge in between the, uh, for the learning tool aspect of what you're doing. So uh, talk to me a little bit about that aspect too, because one thing I've noticed in writing a book is that uh, nobody wants to read right now. The attention spans are all over the place. It's very, I mean, I'm lucky. I only did a book of a hundred pages some odd and I got people to read it on Kindle. And so I was lucky because I did it short enough to make sense. But what I'm worried about, or not worried about, what I'm wondering about from an academic standpoint is do you imagine audio uh, being more of a solution for people as a learning tool? So I have learned a ton about the power of audio in this series. And I've actually done a lot of scientific uh, neuroscience research in terms of how audio works. And my the answer to my to that question is, I do believe that education, knowledge transfer, learning is fundamentally changing as it was changing already, but of course the pandemic has pushed it forward by 10 years for a number of reasons. And when you think about this whole idea of knowledge transfer, it's the most important thing that we do in a society. It's why stories were created in the first place because that was the vehicle by which you got ideas to the next generation or to the next person and kind of kept a, kept a, kept a society together, whether it was five people or 
you know, 5 million people. And education, as it's grown up in the model that, that we see out there now, is this kind of British style industrial model that we've adopted because it's easy to work with and it works and we know how to grow it and it's a bit of a factory. And it's based upon a core live experience, which is theatrical in nature. So live teaching, uh, in-person teaching is by and large, uh, when it's done right, a theatrical uh, experience that has learning values. Again, stories were created to teach people something. And when you look at a lot of these things, learning new things and adding value is uh, what drives a lot of information and communications. Now, as we're moving into a whole new space, educators of the future, of which we don't know what they're going to look like, and I think they'd be very different, are more akin to uh, what we would think of as radio producers or television producers who by and large are we're kind of doing the same thing they're creating content to give to an audience and if the television producer is doing his or her job properly the audience is actually learning something from that 30 second segment or that 30 minute uh, newsreel or that 90 minute film or documentary and that learning of something is what adds value to them and makes them feel like they changed and that it was worthwhile. Uh, and that's what brings people back and all that sort of stuff. And I think that um, uh, audio, video, uh, and just this ability to syndicate education. So think of how the, this, this you know, rapid syndication model that uh, you know, what we once called new media uses. Imagine applying that to an education platform and uh, in a way that was completely different uh, in a way that was self-starting, in a way that allowed people to learn in different terms. Because I do think the biggest challenge we have is we assume people learn in one way, which is the, again, the British military industrial style that we've developed, when that's the furthest thing from the truth. If we could optimize knowledge transfer to the way that people receive information and best analyze it and use it, um, it would it would change the world because we would unlock so much creative genius in so many different ways that it would really uh, very quickly transform things. Yeah, it, I mean, you've unlocked so many different um, broader topics in, in what you're speaking about, including the idea of distribution and discovery. I think one of the biggest personal things that I can't figure out is why it's so hard to discover podcasts naturally through traditional search engines. When I did my digging there, I realized, well, when you have a duopoly like Facebook and Google, when it comes down to search, or it, it becomes really tough to not be in their ecosystems and be discovered. I realized that when I published my book on Amazon, that I couldn't get ranked in Google in discovery. And so I was trying to figure out why that was happening. And I realized, oh, they're competitors. In fact, let me tell you a very quick anecdote about this and I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up with reference to you. I think that, um, actually I won't even bother with the anecdote, I'll, I'll mention it. I think the one key that's going to be for shows like yourself and creators like yourself to really stand out in a crowd is to understand the value of piggybacking off of other people's audiences who want this type of information. You're not necessarily creating something that you think the whole world will grab onto. You're creating something that's an important conversation for certain types of people. And those people have to be the focus of your, of your discovery, right? And the reason I'm saying that is because the guests that 
that you've had have phenomenal outreach and name brand recognition and just amazing things to say. But even their audience won't necessarily know that this exists, right? So the next step in what we're doing in this knowledge sharing has to be, how do we take the onus of the syndication on us because we're creating it? And how are those audiences that we're creating for really finding it without you having to pay hundreds of dollars to Google to get your ad somewhere placed? Um, anyway, I'm sorry I went on, on that tangent. Uh, I do, my next question for you was specifically about your theory with um, the idea of capturing audiences and understanding what audience, what um, a new audience that is 20 and younger would want from um, people like yourself versus an audience of 60 and above. How are you able to sort of carve out that value, especially being a teacher and what you're creating? I think there's two, two things. Um, number one, I think that, again, there's a lot of power in discovery and a lot of power in exploration. So it's, it's kind of like opening up a restaurant in a small neighborhood. You build the best, most loyal and most lucrative client base when people discover you and then they tell their friends about it because they like to tell their friends about something that they've found or discovered. Kind of like how music worked in the early 80s with the college scene and people first discovering bands like R.E.M. They, it was a secret that they had that they would you know, maybe tell their friends because it made them cool or added value and then it just grows from there. The, so there's a lot of power in that because I think that uh, it's, a, it's a more authentic and genuine kind of connection and then the trick is uh, how do you grow that if you want to grow it uh, or because you may want to sort of gate off your consumer base and just have a loyal uh, crew of people who will be a part of your family uh, you know part of the dnext dojo uh, going forward and maybe that's enough the flip side of that talking about the younger generation is that I was recently doing some work with the founder of Woodstock. So the probably oh, biggest, cool. thank you, the <laughs> biggest cultural event of the 60s, uh, maybe even defining, uh, it's uh, by far the most mythologized concert, uh, social happening of all time, I think, you know, known around the world, uh, but it happened in 1969. And I was speaking to um, some young people about this uh, who were in their early teens, and they knew exactly what Woodstock was. They, they, they knew all about it. And that, uh, that really surprised me because um, I had this misunderstanding of, you know, just that there was some kind of chronological divide between interests uh, that you know, from a certain age. And the reality is, is that um, it really doesn't have a lot to do with time, but just to do again with human nature. It's all about human nature. And I think that just something that cool uh, and that rebellious in its spirit and just all this magic that went into it still resonates today. So I think that means now, and I will say having knowing the person who created Woodstock, that that was not by design. That was a pure accident, what happened. And so the thing just sort of grew beyond itself and became what it was. And so there's another lesson there that uh, despite mm. best planning, you just never know. The, the key is, I think, is just understanding human nature. And uh, by and large, understanding human nature is really just understanding the, physio the physiological 
uh, attributes of how the brain works uh, because it's all about dopamine release. And when you look at, you know, things like why, why people love music, as an example, and Alan Cross talks about this in one of the earlier podcasts. Um, it's people don't realize that that emotional rush is releasing all sorts of chemicals in your brain that um, you don't realize, but that's what generates uh, that kind of going back to music because you want to have that feeling again. But that feeling is actually a physiological thing. You're 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 releasing all sorts of uh, feel-good chemicals to your brain, and I think that you know it's as simple as that in many ways. So. I guess, you know, to, to say that is that it's all about experimentation and it's all about learning from that experimentation and just seeing where it goes. Let me ask you very quickly, because I know that you're short on time as well. What? Uh, tell me about how excited you are about your geographic location, what's going on in Durham. Um, I got to be honest with you, until you and I spoke, I didn't think twice about what right. was happening in your region. And well, uh, you're 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 definitely one that's going to fight for uh, mayor status at some point because you evangelize <laughs> how. So tell me what's going on there. Sure. Uh, a lot. Well, that's, you know, part of the reason that I did this podcast as well is to shine a light on Durham. Durham is this amazing area just east of Toronto that obviously has been around for a long time, but is recently just experiencing this incredible growth because we have six post-secondary institutions that are based here now. There was a big announcement a few weeks ago about another $1.4 billion reinvestment from General Motors into Oshawa and the future of the auto sector. There's a big multi-billion dollar uh, casino and entertainment district being built right now in Pickering, which is going to include a 400,000 square foot film and television soundscape. There's a huge uh, nuclear uh, expansion happening and nuclear obviously is, is uh, going to be a big player in the future of energy on this planet and all and you know not to mention all of the residents moving in and what's interesting about that is that it's building at a time when we can look back on how the gta was built on how york region was built and all these other areas west of uh, toronto and with that hindsight in mind and with that evolved value system in mind we can create kind of the utopia that we want or at least try to and that not make the same mistakes that some other places have made and that we can look ahead and say, well, we value our, uh, you know, family and recreational life as much as we value our ability to work and, you know, prosper and make money and build things. And I think that just because of time and evolution and having learned, we're able to do that, that right now, Durham is this clean sheet of paper where new ideas can really take off because we have the synergistic elements again with i don't know what the number is but there's probably with all the with all the universities and colleges that combined at some point there's going to be hundreds of thousands of new students from all over the world who are here and uh that creates a lot of energy that uh, can in turn create new things. So I've traveled innovation zones around America in uh, Ohio and New York and LA to look at what they have in common. And so uh, part of what I want to do is build that ecosystem, but build it in a way that is a lot more 360 thinking than we've done in the past, because I think that what we've learned, especially in the last eight months, is that life is more than just making money and prospering, that to really have a successful life, we need to have all of those things. And we can, we can have all those things if we just think a bit differently. You know, I'll, I'll mention one thing, Paul, that is a concern of mine is that people like yourself and people, I guess, like myself, if I can say that we're creating this wonderful 
um, content and we're capturing these moments that are so vital to being what's happening now. My worry is where where's the archive? Where's the knowledge management? How are we archiving this so that if somebody five years from now needs to find something, it's not going to be buried on an iTunes uh, library or whatever. So I hope that one of the things that we can rely on you for from a leadership perspective in that 360 thinking is all of this effort that you're putting in and many people are putting in to capture uh, historical moments and, and culture shifts can be kept properly and not just in this weird online echo chamber and more so uh, for, for reference material. So there's a compliment in that, what I'm saying, Paul, is that it's very important how you're approaching both your community involvement, your, your content, uh, your digital footprint and what you're doing right now, your pivot. It's remarkable to learn from. I just hope that well, while you continue to do it, it's an effort that's not lost in what's happening today. And it's an effort that is continued to be, like your conversation with some of those people that you've had on the show alone are so important to understand right now. It's not gonna be the same two years from now. Things are going to change. And from a research and documentation perspective, it's very important that uh, work that you're doing doesn't become why it's important today and it becomes a little bit more of a long haul. So I hope that that next phase of, the, of what you're doing ends up being a little bit of that, hey, how do we make sure this is accessible uh, for a long period to come? Well, and with that, I will accept the challenge and I will say thank you very much for joining us today on Dean Next. It's been a fascinating conversation and I think that more to come in the future. So uh, thank you very much. My pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about this episode or to hear any of our other interviews in this masterclass series, please visit us at thenextnow.com. Until next time.